You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com as well. Please consider becoming a patron. And there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art. This is the seventh entry in the, uh, in the book, the third of the lectures. I'm calling this number 7.3, entitled The Sensory Suprasensory in Its Realization Through Art, Part 2, given in Munich on February 17, 1918. There is a very witty man who uttered a remarkable phrase about all human philosophizing. In a recent publication, which considers at length all the impossibilities and uselessness of human philosophizing, he said human beings have no more philosophy than an animal, and distinguish themselves from animals only in that they furiously attempt to achieve a philosophy, but ultimately have to admit that they are defeated and must lose themselves in ignorance. There is a lot in this book, which is otherwise a book worth reading, that basically collects everything that can be said against philosophy. That is why the man in question became a professor of philosophy at a university. I would like to quote this man with a remark that is concerned with natural science. It is a fairly radical remark. For the gentleman in question says that nature is mysterious in all directions, and that when the human being really perceives these mysteries of nature on all sides, he cannot but realize how endlessly small his own being is. Nature in its infinitude spreads itself out immeasurably, and we ought to feel that we, with our concepts and ideas about nature, stand around gaping. I am quoting, and one can say that This remark is not entirely incorrect, and that when we observe nature, we human beings really do notice how little of what we can grasp in our thoughts. Even when we practice our cleverest natural science, actually reflects the immeasurable mysteries of nature. And if we did not perceive how nature is confronted by the thought, which is not the result of nature alone, but can only be generated in the human soul, If we did not know that this thought corresponds to a human need, if we did not feel in the activity of the thought about nature something of what determines our humanity and our human development, something which we need just as the seed needs the plant, then we would really not know with ripened self-knowledge why we even think about nature. We think about nature for our own sake, and know that when we confront nature in our thoughts, we are actually quite distant from this nature. That is how we feel in observing nature. If we feel ourselves in the presence of the spiritual world, the suprasensory world, then we have to say this differently. When this suprasensory life presents itself within us, no matter how insignificant or childish it may appear to be, We feel an inner necessity to express what the Spirit reveals in the soul. 
and even though we experience the most intense sense of responsibility toward everything we utter about the Spirit, about what we speak out of the Spirit, about what can only be revealed and fostered in the soul, we feel that we must obey this, that we must express this out of an inner necessity, just as the child grows or learns to speak. Therefore we feel ourselves in opposite conditions in the face of the sensory or the suprasensory. A third aspect is what one could call thinking about or speaking about art. If we want to express ourselves about art, we feel neither the, quote, standing beside nature, close quote, which we always feel when thinking about nature, nor the necessity that comes over us in the presence of inner revelations of the suprasensory. Instead, when we try to express ourselves about art, we have the feeling that we are disturbing ourselves continually with the thought we are developing. In the presence of artistic appreciation, the thought is actually a real troublemaker. And as regards everything related to art, we would again and again like to stop talking and instead appreciate the art silently. If for some reason, however, we do not want to talk about art, then we do not want to do so with the attitude of a professor of aesthetics or even an art critic. Certainly not from the perspective of the art critic, which would be like eating some tasty food and then giving a lecture about why it tasted so good. We only want to talk about our own experiences of art, our joys, what we learned, and so forth. Just as we sometimes like to speak about recent experiences with a dear friend. Out of heartfelt depths, not critically, is how we ought to speak about art. And we also ought not to claim something lawful or generally valid when speaking about art, but rather just state our own subjective belief. But it seems to me to be a consistent feeling in relation to any sort of discussion about art that thoughts are a disturbance, and it is precisely this which seems to me to indicate the peculiar nature of art. Inasmuch as we human beings live in the world of the senses, the question might be asked, what is the relationship of art to the world of the senses? And, inasmuch as we can only exhaust our feeling about the world of the senses, if we have a relationship to the suprasensory, we could also ask, what is the relationship of art to the suprasensory? Now, it seems to me that through an elemental feeling that develops in relation to artistic creativity, we quickly have to arrive at the conviction that art is neither able to represent the sensory as it surrounds us, nor to bring the thought to expression. In the presence of the sensory, someone who has a feeling for nature will always have the perception that if one wants to represent it and create a picture of it, one cannot reach nature as such, that nature is always more beautiful and more complete than any representation. In the presence of what is spiritual, poetry about worldviews or things of that nature attest to this, one will have the feeling that if one wants to represent it, one will describe things that are insipid 
and superfluous. Poetry about world views have, under all conditions, a pedantic schoolroom character. Any true artistic feeling will actually always reject allegorical symbolism. And so it is just this question about the relationship of art to the sensory and the suprasensory that can seem like a life question. That is why the question arises. Is there something else apart from the sensory and suprasensory that has something to do with the essential task of artistic creativity and appreciation? No doubt this is a question we will be able to answer only by really engaging with the soul process of artistic creativity and appreciation, not by describing it through the laws of aesthetics, but through experience. When we stand before the world in an ordinary, sober, let us say for the moment, inartistic manner, we are dealing with sensory perception on the one hand, and on the other hand, with what is engendered by sensory perception in our own soul, namely with our thoughts. A perception such as the one offered by nature, like the demand for art to reproduce a human being, seems to me, for the given reasons, to be something rather impossible and therefore superfluous. The desire to reproduce, through art, the immediate perception of nature actually always arises from certain artistic aberrations. But on the other side, and perhaps this is something remarkable, but we do experience it, and I have already indicated this in reference to discussion about art, it appears thus. In the process of real artistic creativity and appreciation, we make the effort to ignore the thought as best we can, in no way to allow the thought to arise. This seems to me to rest on the fact that in the human soul, processes continually form that either can thrive to the end or will stop at some place or another. We can follow these processes only by descending through spiritual observation into the depths of the soul's life, which remains in the subconscious or unconscious realm for ordinary consciousness. Whoever observes the soul life of the human being will find, at first apart from observation of the outer world, that this soul life, insofar as it continues to develop when we ponder it, to develop freely in the inner life, always has a tendency that can be described in no other way than this. Whatever ebbs and flows in the soul's life as sensing, as restrained will impulse, as feelings, and so on, wants to ascend. And in principle, also in the healthy life of soul, it wants to form itself into what one calls a vision. In life we actually always strive to form the ebb and flow of the soul's depths into vision. Such vision, however, may not come to the surface in the healthy life of soul. It must be replaced. It must be checked as it arises. Otherwise, illness arises in the life of soul. In every life of soul, however, strivings to form visions announce themselves. And we go through life continually arresting visions in our subconscious by letting them fade away. That is where observation of the outer picture helps us. 
If we approach the outer world directly with our seething life of soul, then the outer world dulls what wants to become vision, and the vision fades into a healthy thought. I said that we go through the world continually striving for visions. The corresponding perceptions, however, do not always become conscious in the proper way. But whoever attempts to clarify what resounds softly between the lines of daily life, whoever attempts to observe this, will soon see that really all manner of things show up. I have to say, if, for example, I happen to enter someone's dining room and to find there a company of people eating and the plates and bowls were painted red, I would involuntarily believe, through an elemental feeling, there around the table is a company of gourmets who really want to sink into the enjoyment of the dishes and desserts. If, in contrast, I were to see that there were blue plates and bowls on the tables, then I would believe that they were not gourmets, but that they were eating because they were hungry. Of course, one could also see this differently. That is not the point. The point is that we are always tempted to release an aesthetic feeling by means of things that approach us in life, and then to turn this into a fading vision. Naturally, it is entirely possible to be deeply deluded in this realm. That does not matter. Even if it is not true that one must tell a group eating from red plates that they are gourmets, aesthetically it remains true. One could just as well say, if someone welcomed me into a red room and continually allowed me to talk without saying a word, like a very boring gentleman, then I would say, he is lying to me. For in a red room I await someone who has something to say to me and I would consider it a profound deception for him to just let me talk and talk. So we are actually always inclined, as we go through life, to raise what we experience to a repressed vision, which then pales beneath the outer impressions of life. Artistic appreciation and creativity always go a step further. Artistic appreciation and creativity cannot let what seethes and boils down there in the soul's life rise up subconsciously into a mere thought. That would be something that would indeed fill us with thoughts, but it would not bring us to something artistic. If, however, we are able as artists, or because the artist approaches us, to take what wants to rise up in the soul and to arrange something outwardly, I mean an arrangement of color, and if our perception is such that this color arrangement gives us something we need so that the corresponding rising vision, which, however, must not be allowed to become vision, has an outer complement, then we definitely have something artistic before us. I can well imagine that someone might simply limit himself using some sort of artistic means to express moods of soul and feelings by arranging colors that perhaps do not correspond to any outer object. Perhaps the less they correspond, the better. But that to some extent are the counterpart of what wants to become vision in his soul life. In the copious contemporary discussions about all sorts of artistic things, we have become more aware of such phenomena 
And when someone creates something that has nothing to do with outer things and merely has the task I just noted, we speak of expressionistic art. These days it is not frowned upon to assume that what is being prepared as longing in the human being and strives toward a goal corresponds to a fundamental tendency in humanity, namely to make sense perceptible what can only reveal itself spiritually in the soul. If, however, one were to desire to express a thought, something that has already become a pale thought before the visionary stage, through some sort of sensory medium, then one would be inartistic. If one avoids the thoughts and places oneself immediately in the presence of the sensory form, then one has established a relationship between the human being and that which has come about artistically, that through which the thought was stopped. And one can say, that is the essential thing, that art represents neither what is sensory nor what is suprasensory. Instead, it represents the sensory-suprasensory, something where in the sensory there is an immediate counterpart to a suprasensory experience. Neither the sensory nor the suprasensory but only the sensory-suprasensory can be realized through art. On the other hand, we might ask ourselves, how is it possible to have any sort of artistic relationship to nature if it is not possible simply to imitate in art what we perceive in prosaic life as outer nature? If nature did not include anything but what it offered through outer perception, which stimulates the formation of thoughts, there would be no necessity for the genesis of art. We can only speak of the necessity of artistic creation if more is contained in nature than what comes to light for the imagination, the thoughts, in the completed products of nature, which cannot form the bridge in art between the personality and outer nature. But we must also admittedly say Nature has within itself that immensity, that powerful infinitude, which we cannot immediately grasp through our thoughts. Even in its sensory aspect, nature contains the suprasensory. We arrive at the basis for the sensory-suprasensory in nature if we observe nature in such a way that we try to reach what exists in nature apart from its sensory impressions. Now, I would like to give an example. When standing before a human being, we can direct our attention to the human form, to how the incarnadine reveals itself in the human form, to how, through the outer form, the soul announces itself in physiognomy and facial expressions. We can trace how all of life is really imbued by outer form. We can certainly do that. But even if we wanted to reproduce everything that is part of a human being, we could not, as previously mentioned, arrive at nature. For it is still inartistic to want simply to reproduce an outer object of nature. Anyone who seeks a mimetic copy of the outer world in a work of art is confessing from the beginning these things need to be expressed radically that he desires not a work of art, but an illusion. And there is yet another thing. We must say, if we follow what is expressed in the human form, 
then what appears there as form is killed through everything else that lives in it, through the tone that comes directly from life, through the soul content. And that is the secret of nature, that it is so endless in its detail that each detail withstands being killed through something superior. But if we have a sense for this, we can awaken, out of its own being, what has been killed. What is killed in the human form by the higher life, killed through being permeated by the soul, can be so enlivened that the form itself now becomes a living being without harboring, in itself, life and soul content. For example, as sculptors, we ourselves can provide the form for what we need to use because we are working in materials. We realize that nature is so powerfully infinite that in every one of its details it hides endlessly more than it reveals. When it places a form before us, it kills the inner life of that form. Life is enchanted within it, and we can break its spell. When in nature something that is colored presents itself to us, we can be sure that the object's color has been killed through something else. If I take just the color itself, then I can awaken something out of the color that has nothing to do with what the color is in the object. I create a life out of the color, a life that only lies enchanted in the color when the color appears on the surface of a natural object. In this way, it is possible to break the spell of enchanted life in everything that appears to us in nature. It is possible to release what exists in nature and its intense infinitude. To release it everywhere, out of this nature, and never to create imitations of nature, but to break the spell of what has been killed in nature through something higher. When we speak of these things, or try to speak of these things, we are tempted to speak in paradoxes, but that, I believe, does not matter, because these extreme radical cases can show how things actually function in less radical cases. Just as I can, on the one hand, think that when the artistic element is worked out of the inner being through the stem division, and I create the counter-image in forms and lines and colors, these lines and colors may be so composed that they reflect nothing other than the restrained vision. So, on the other hand, I can say, it seems possible to me that I can create something living out of a natural being, let us say, a human being in which life itself has been killed, making it a corpse, by re-enlivening the corpse artistically through something I extract out of the common universal element. Such extreme cases are not required. It is, however, possible, as a borderline case, that when nature has already killed a being, a new creation, even if it is the corpse, can come into being, because something which is very different from what the human being is himself, with his soul being, can be added in order to imbue the form with soul. I could well imagine that a bewitching work of art might come about because a corpse sprouts forth new life that reflects these secrets, which exist in relation to the human being and are hidden only because until his death 
the human being actually contains his soul being in himself. We need not stumble on account of such borderline cases. It is, after all, a borderline case. It can clarify that artistic creativity in the presence of outer nature can be effective. For actually, even if not driven to be a borderline case, artistic creativity and appreciation continually proceed in this way. Art is a continual redemption of mysterious life which cannot be in nature itself but must be extracted from it. I confront in the human form a product of nature that has been killed, but I attempt to awaken the life of this form, and although the form is just a dead form, to awaken the entire human being out of this form. Genesis tells us that the human being emerged from the breath of God, that the human soul was breathed into him. That could lead one to see more in the air than just the combination of the oxygen and nitrogen. It could mislead one to see in the air something of what awakens the human soul, something soulful. It could mislead one into believing that this air breathed in by the human being longs fundamentally to become a soul. One might be able to see in the air the counter-image of what is human soulfulness, in other words, more than something merely lifeless, a longing toward the human being. But it is the case that having such a perception about the air will be very difficult, because air and fire do little to inspire artistic formation. No one will actually want to paint fire, just as little as lightning, nor will anyone want to draw the air. So as far as the air is concerned, we will not easily come to this feeling. But it seems to me that a true artistic feeling about the worlds of light and color can come to this feeling. We really can have this feeling in the presence of the world of light and color. Every color, or at least the relationships among the colors, have the longing to become either a whole human being or part of a human being. As part of the human being, either they find themselves as an inner expression of his being, or the light illuminates him and is reflected. But we can say that if one lives in the light itself, then one lives in the longing of the air to form itself, for example, into a human face. We can have the feeling red and yellow want something. They want to form themselves into something that is part of the human being. They have a language that is inherent within them. Then we will not attempt merely to reproduce the human being in a prosaic way. In any event, it must become an ideal of artistic creativity to become liberated from the model. Whoever does not overcome the model the moment he begins to create, whoever does not view it as something that guides him in how to eavesdrop on the secrets of nature, will remain dependent on the model and create mere illustrations. On the other hand, someone with artistic feeling will be tempted to form a human being or some other being or natural form out of the color. For such a person, color will be able to achieve an inwardly differentiated life. We will find that red and yellow are such that they tempt us to use them 
where we want something to come to expression, to speak through itself. What faces us in red, in yellow, will express itself on its own, will generate through its own strength the ideal of art, namely to exclude the thought. Blue and violet are different when they face us. There it is more a matter of having the feeling that blue and violet, at least in one direction, come near the thought. We will have the feeling that we cannot represent with blue or violet something that expresses its own nature, but rather something that expresses another thing besides itself. We will be tempted to represent the blue according to our own inwardness by showing it in movement. And we will experience that it is difficult to bring forth an inner movement in the object by using any kind of red lines. Red is much more likely, I would say, to give rise through lines, through shading, to physiognomy. Red will speak through itself. Blue, if we transpose it into lines, will divulge its inner nature, will lead us more under the surface of the color than in an outward direction. If something expresses itself as color, we have the feeling that the color pushes us back. Blue leads us under the surface of the color. We think that in what comes to expression in the blue, movement and development of will are possible. It will be fruitful to use blue in painting a purely sensory, suprasensory being, meaning a suprasensory being that we want to place into the sense world, and to express its inner mobility with nuances of blue. In that way we can break the spell of whatever approaches us in nature as an individual part, whatever has been killed in nature through a higher life. We can find the sensory, suprasensory itself in nature. We can enliven the mere form. We will find that a satisfactory impression can never really be made if we simply reproduce the human form as it is in the human being in a sculptural artwork. Once, many years ago, I had a strange experience with a friend who became a sculptor. He told me at the time, both of us were very young people, quote, Yes, you see, one would accomplish the right sculptural work of art by exactly imitating each individual change in the surface. Close quote. I have to admit that this utterance made me wild, for it seemed to me that this was the path to the very most horrible artistic achievement. For in any case, if we want to reveal in the stone or wood what the human form has as form, what it is in him that kills life through something higher, without this inner life, then we would have to enliven it. The surface must be called upon to express what it never can express in the outer nature of the human being. We will find, for example, that if we curve a surface and then curve it again so that the curved part is bent again, we have the simplest archetypal phenomenon of the inner life. A surface that is curved in this way, so that the curve is curved again, can be used in the most varied ways. And of course this needs to be further developed. The inner life of the surface will emerge from the surface. Such things prove to us that there is a relationship between outer nature and the human inner realm, which in truth has the character 
of the sensory suprasensory. We recognize the thought formation of outer nature when this outer nature kills off through something higher what otherwise holds a higher spiritual life under enchantment. Thus we are forced to grasp the dead life by means of a dry thought. If we avoid this pale thought and attempt to grasp what lies enchanted in the individual parts of nature and try on our own to carry out the process of gathering it together, of giving it a higher life, then we experience the process of artistic creation or artistic appreciation. The relationship of these two is simply that what is later for the first is earlier for the second, and what is earlier for the second is later for the first. If we follow this method of observation that is directed toward the intense infinitude of nature, toward the possibility of breaking the spell of the secrets of nature, of what it represents in the soul life of the human being, then we must say, the pale world of thought is not called forth in this way. What is freed from enchantment in this way is lighter than what the mere thought can grasp. It again provides a connection between the outer object and the human soul, a connection in which thought is eliminated but in which there is, nevertheless, a striving for a spiritual relationship between the human being and the object. Of course, this can proceed further. And there we come to what can today seem to be really absurd, even horrible to many people. This is understandable, but people have always taken as horrible what they later take for granted once they have gotten used to it. If you observe someone you need only consider his skeleton, a merely superficial observation will reveal that the skeleton consists of two radically different members. The rest we will not consider today. First, the skull, which is, so to speak, just set atop the skeleton. And second, the rest of the body of the skeleton. For someone who has a sense for form, not through anatomical observation, but through a feeling perception of skull and skeleton, it becomes evident that the one is a metamorphosis of the other, that we can think of the form of the main bones in such a way that wherever there is a bump, the bone could expand, and on the other hand, wherever there is an expansion, it could contract. Through metamorphosis alone, we really can, through the change of forms, have the skull arise out of the body of the skeleton, and to a high degree have the body of the skeleton arise out of the skull. Thus we can say, the entire human being is enchanted within the head. Even if we are confronted by a skeleton without a head, we will be tempted, if we do not want to be stuck in the sensory observation, to supplement this skeleton with a head in a sensory, suprasensory way. We will be tempted to have the vision of the head arise from the skeleton. There are people who cannot imagine this. But it is impossible that in nature somehow the skeleton of the human torso came about without the skull. For someone who does not confront nature merely with abstract conceptions, but rather carries the being of nature in his own feeling perception and senses objects in nature 
only as they must be sensed, it will be obvious that the skull must arise like a vision out of the body of the skeleton. But for one who sees through such things, it must follow that if he has only the head, and as if in a vision adds the entire human being, this human being will be different than if vice versa he adds the other. It is similar and yet different. Thus we can say, in outer nature the human being is created as a whole, which consists of a division into head and the rest of the organism. But each individual part wants to be a whole human being. In a higher whole, that life is killed, which is enchanted in each individual part as a whole human being. If we exclude this thought that rises up when we face a human being, then we must supply the human being with what we take from him when we analyze him out of our own inwardness. And in this way we are building nature creatively, as nature builds itself. We achieve this endlessly intensive, meaningful process of unifying, which must first be killed in its parts so as to reappear at a higher stage. And, of course, it is different when we produce it in the spirit. I believe this already calls forth a certain horror. In Dornach, in our building, we tried, when can try things in any sphere, for it should never be a case of wanting to limit art because of some sort of dogma. With a group that was to be sculpted in wood, it is important that it be sculpted in wood, for it would not be possible with stone. First of all, in a central figure. We try to unify on a higher plane what is also unified in the human being through nature, or once again the parts are killed through something higher. Every human being is asymmetrical, but we can feel what in the left side wants to become something quite different from the right. Thus, two people stand before us, the left person and the right person. What is specialized in the left person and the right person is unified in nature into a higher whole by killing the willfulness of the parts. In artistic observation, which confronts the will of nature, there arises again, I might put it like this, the complete form of the left person and the right person. Fundamentally, they both want something different. And the artist must, this can stay very much in the unconscious, relive the process that nature completes on a different plane when it kills the left person and the right person and balances them out in the whole human being. If we really create an artistic form in which there is the indication that the human being is an asymmetrical being, then something else must be added. When the sensory, suprasensory is perceived, it makes it necessary to include the necessary parts. That is why we had to create other figures. We were obliged to compensate for the disintegration and reunification of the left person and the right person by hinting at the two polarities. What is it that lives in the human being as a vision if we consider the human torso as it becomes a whole human being? For there would live in the outer form what rises from the torso into the head as urges and instincts which we could call luciferic. We will want to form what is luciferic differently than nature does. 
For example, we will transform the shoulder blades into wings. Then we will in turn be tempted to combine these wings with the form of the ear and head, which constricts nature. Something different from a normal, natural human being will result from these sensory, suprasensory human parts. But it will represent a particular aspect of the human being, an aspect that we should not represent individually. It would be gruesome if someone were to play such a figure on its own. But in the context of the human being and brought into the right composition with the human being, it can be composed in such a way that we can imitate the compositional power of nature. We must also copy in the opposite way what wants to become a whole human being in the human head, what wants to become an entire human being in the human head that will be calcified, hardened. That is what we continually have to overcome in ourselves, what we do actually overcome when we add impulses effectively from the rest of our organism to those which we carry in our head, impulses that keep the hardening fresh. We have to overcome what is head by what originates in the heart organism as blood. There the sensory, suprasensory constitution of the human being provides the possibility of observing in the separate forms what nature itself composes in a hidden way on another plane. In actuality, what we could call a process of creative imitation, a process in the human soul, becomes something that nature does not only imitate abstractly, outwardly, but that the development of nature itself carries out in the human being. This presupposes that the artist and the appreciator of art confront nature and themselves in a very complicated manner that remains in the unconscious because the thought is stopped. This is understandable. We must really say, as far as the soul is concerned, we are in a very complicated process with what ought to become artistic. If someone really wanted to reproduce a beautiful woman, then by only imitating what nature provides, he would kill this woman inwardly. He would represent her as dead. She would not be alive in him, especially if he reproduces her very faithfully. We must be able first to transform her into a corpse, but then, which is really true humor, recreate her beauty out of an entirely different element. Without, metaphorically speaking, killing a beautiful woman pictorially, we must really first somehow turn her into something dead. We cannot draw her properly. Her beauty is present in nature, through something quite different than it must be in a finished work of art. We must first discover through humor what will newly create that which we must actually kill. We could say, if we sit opposite an earnest scholar and make a copy of him, then the copy will first be a joke. Perhaps we will be tempted to laugh at his earnest expression. But we will only be finished artistically with the earnest scholarly expression if we bring it to life again through something else in a humorous way. We will in turn have to do this lovingly and will then understand it from an entirely different perspective. 
It is therefore a matter of resuscitation, of breaking the spell, of redeeming through our own subjective life what is killed in nature. If I were to observe a dashing young farm boy walking through the alpine meadow and simply reproduce him, I would probably create something very dead. But if I make the effort to, so to speak, kill him first and then through the lines I draw bring about harmony between him and surrounding nature, I will create something artistic. Hodler tried such things, and we can see that in the subconscious similar things are attempted everywhere. This led to artistic discussions about what can be called, on the one hand, the creation of the counter-image for the unfinished vision, and on the other hand, the creation of the subjective counter-image through what is enchanted in nature and continually killed through a higher life. Thereby the sensory suprasensory nears the human being from two sides. Thereby the human being can try to bring this to a higher new existence in art. In my earlier lectures on this theme, I tried to connect these thoughts about how the sensory suprasensory can realize itself through art to certain thoughts of Goethe. This was held against me, and I now notice that I have been able to speak here without reference to Goethe. All sorts of complaints are raised just when one refers to Goethe, because people who consider themselves to be especially close to Goethe think that if they repeat something of his that they do not understand, they can make judgments about those others who take the trouble to penetrate the matter. We can understand these things. It is a natural process in human life. And we sometimes have to be downright happy when something we say is subject to such judgment. We could even have the point of view, if someone else has experienced a confirming judgment, then we must have said something really superfluous or stupid. What I have been able to avoid here, I do at least want to bring forward at the end. I truly believe that anyone who approaches Goethe with understanding will find in his broad-minded and sound observation of art, although perhaps expressed differently, what today was described as the sensory-suprasensory element of art. Even the expression is borrowed from Goethe, and I believe, although I am certainly of the opinion that in a certain sense it is correct for someone who has experienced art's secrets to possess a fairly unspoken antipathy toward the intellectual criticism of art or aesthetic scientific observation, I believe that art can only be talked about from the standpoint of life, that the artists themselves have the most correct way of talking about art. Admittedly, this can sometimes lead to remarkable experiences. As a general rule, artists grumble terribly about what the other artists create. And though one may enjoy the artist's works of art, one does not always enjoy what the artists say about their artworks, because they occasionally live in delusion about their own works of art. But the artist really must create out of illusion, and it is just this which might be right, which provides the right impulse for his artistic creativity. Even if I admit all of this, and if from a particular point of view I understand that the artist is really always fairly aloof from everything that approaches him as pandering from the side of aesthetic, scientific, or other such observation, 
I nevertheless do not believe that it is entirely unnecessary to form feeling-like ideas about art. I believe that art must always progress along with the general progress of the soul's life. I believe that it is just through this consideration of the sensory-suprasensory as it forms itself out of the restrained vision as it appears to us out of outer nature when we free it from its enchantment that art solves the riddles of nature in a sensory-suprasensory way. Thus, in conclusion, I want to summarize today's considerations by quoting this beautiful worldly utterance of Goethe, quote, The one to whom nature begins to reveal her open secret feels an irresistible longing for her worthiest interpreter, art. Close quote. The end of lecture 7.3